Well, if like me, you are a frequent visitor to your local Chinese restaurant, I think you are going to really enjoy a fascinating book called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food. Uh, it is written by uh, uh, Jennifer Eight Lee, the daughter of Chinese immigrants uh, who ate authentic Chinese food growing up in uh, her family's home before going out into the world and eating what is not quite so authentic Chinese cuisine in your typical Chinese restaurant. And uh, sort of a real-life experience involving the lottery is actually what fueled her interest in looking at the pervasiveness of Chinese restaurants across the country, uh, their great success and what makes them tick, and also trying to get a few questions answered behind uh, some of the things which we are so apt to take for granted, like where do these interesting fortune cookies come from? That's just one of many questions explored in this really interesting book, again called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food. This is published by uh, 12 Publication. And Jennifer Eight Lee, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Can you explain to us your middle name right off the bat? Yeah. Uh, number eight is considered good luck in Chinese. The number is commonly found throughout Chinese culture. As a matter of fact, the uh, Olympics start at 8 p.m. August 8th on 2008. I'm sure they wanted this Olympics, not like 2020. <laughs> Very good. Um, tell our listeners about the incident involving the lottery, which really sort of sets you on this quest to, uh, to explore the world of Chinese restaurants. Yeah, so on March 30th, 2005, uh, Powerball, which is a big multi-state lottery, uh, had an unexpectedly high number of second-place winners. They had only expected, based on statistics, that they would have maybe three or four people who came in second place. Instead, they had 110, and it completely blew their mind. They're like, oh my God, is this fraud? Um, did someone game the system? And when they investigated, what they found out is a lot of these people had played the lucky numbers that are found in their little fortune cookie slips. And so I sent, set out on this trail to sort of trace the fortune cookie back to the original factory. And after, you know, traveling across the entire country and, you know, went around the world investigating fortune cookies, it actually is a factory that's about five miles from my home in Long Island City, Queens, called Wonton Food. And they are the world's largest uh, fortune cookie manufacturer. They make about half of all the fortune cookies in the United States at the rate of 4.5 million cookies per day. And they are um, also the company that tried a couple years ago in the early 90s to introduce fortune cookies to China. Because up to that point, you know, no fortune cookies in China. And they failed because, as one executive told to me, it was too American. Hmm. So... I spent a lot of time trying to unravel that, and also the history of the fortune cookie, um, which is not from China, and not really even totally originally from San Francisco, as a lot of people say. It's from Japan. Mm. So I'd go all the way to Kyoto and find these small family-run bakeries that um, are still making old-fashioned Japanese fortune cookies, which are brown instead of yellow, and miso and sesame-flavored instead of vanilla-flavored, and they're just making them you know, by hand instead of with machines. So that, to me, really blew my mind, because up until this point, we had not known definitively that fortune cookies were something that were Japanese. Hmm. So what began as kind of a quest to understand uh, where all these lottery winners came from ultimately became a quest to find out where fortune cookies come from, and which seemed in turn 
to uh, fuel your interest in, in pursuing even more uh, information about Chinese restaurants and, right. and so how the they idea. function. Yeah, so the idea is fortune cookies are not the only thing that we think of as Chinese, but in fact, largely, you know, indigenous to America, like things that we think of as uh, General Tso's chicken and beef with broccoli and egg rolls. And chop suey. Chop suey are not known in China. General Tso's chicken is a dish that is, you know, introduced as a recipe in the early 1970s in New York City. I went back to China, to General Tso's hometown, and showed all of his relatives who are still hanging out there uh, pictures of General Tso's chicken. And they're like, we don't know this dish. And then they look closer at the picture. And they're like, is this Chinese food? Because it doesn't even look like Chinese food to them. And broccoli is not a Chinese vegetable, despite, you know, beef with broccoli and, you know, chicken with broccoli. It's originally an Italian vegetable that became popular in America in the early 1920s and the early 1930s and became this huge mainstay. So guarantee you, General Tao never saw a stock of broccoli in his life. And fortune cookies, as you know, um, are almost exclusively found in America, except for a couple of countries which have imported them from um, America as a concept and as a cookie. And chop suey in Chinese actually means... Uh, and that is odds and ends, or bits and pieces, or leftovers. So it's basically the biggest culinary joke that one culture has ever played on another. You think of it as the national dish of China, which Americans did for the early part of the 20th century, where in fact Chinese people are like, what is this dish? Hmm. So the point is, um, or the book is, it's to make people think twice about what it means to be American, that these foods that we think of as exotic, in fact, are more domestic than we realize, because you know, if our benchmark for America is apple pie, you should ask yourself, well, wait, how often do I eat apple pie, and how often do I eat Chinese food? And the Chinese restaurants, without us realizing, are utterly pervasive, right, because there are more Chinese restaurants in this country than McDonald's, Burger King, and Kentucky Fried Chickens combined. Hmm. Yeah, they certainly are are, are everywhere, and uh, and it's interesting, you you point out a, a, a couple of really fascinating I suppose they're even rather minor points, but fascinating all the same, about the way in which the typical Chinese restaurant functions. And, and one of them is that uh, something about when, when a Chinese restaurant uh, is sold, um, often it just sort of one day is owned by someone else and uh, without a lot of fanfare, without a big mm-hmm. closing sale and a reopening, grand reopening. Mm-hmm. You say Chinese restaurants are like hermit crab shells. The owners come and go. The restaurants like the shell are passed along, largely indifferent to the identity uh, of their occupants. That's kind of an interesting thing. Any theories as, as to why Chinese restaurants should op- op- operate in this way? Yeah, because in a way... Um the people who buy and own Chinese restaurants, in many cases, not all cases, are not chefs by training. You know, they come to America and open restaurants because that's what you do if you don't speak English. You know, there's a demand for it and you, you have the skills. So to them, it's just a business. It's very transient. In many cases, you know, you can have families bouncing from Georgia to Tennessee to Illinois, just opening restaurants and selling them as they go. Um, and one of the things that I always found interest, interesting is that in Chinese newspapers, in the classifieds, American newspapers, too, have, you know, help wanted, housing for sale, jobs wanted. But in almost every Chinese newspaper, there's a whole section devoted to the buying and selling of Chinese restaurants. And that's because it's such a main part of the Chinese-American economy. So they don't necessarily see this as an actualization of their identity as much as a way to survive. So, you know, you know, you can open one, you can close one. It's 
kind of all the same. I mean, you can make a decent living. You know, it gets harder over time with more competition. But overall, they don't, they don't really feel like they have too much of a choice. Hmm. You, you talk about how Chinese restaurants seem to flourish everywhere. You say they have an enviable ability to take root in any community, urban or rural, cosmopolitan or isolated. If an environment can support life, then like bacteria, a Chinese restaurant uh, will find it. I mean, and it, this seems to be especially true in America. And you suggest a couple of ways in which uh, the American public and and this kind of quasi-Chinese cuisine seem really well matched to each other. What are a couple of the most significant explanations for why Chinese restaurants do so well here? Well, um, one, they're not that expensive. Two, they're very quick. So if you need, you know, if you want to go to a restaurant, you just want to grab something and go, they do that. But unlike fast food, which also do, does those things, it seems a lot healthier, right? There's broccoli, there's no peas, there's corn. So it doesn't, we, we kind of in our minds know that like a hamburger with fries can't be all that good for you. But there's something a little bit healthier about Chinese food, so mothers feel better about giving it to their kids. And um, they give you very large portions. It's easily shared. So um, as Americans move to a much more you know, double-income, busy lifestyle, Chinese restaurants, especially takeout, kind of rushed in to fill the mold. And they're among the cuisines that adapted best to changing trends in American lifestyle. So, for example, uh, delivery and takeout were largely pioneered by Chinese restaurants in the country. Hmm. I thought it was very interesting, uh, the connection that you point out. It's been pointed out elsewhere, but you you do a really good job, I think, of helping us understand the uh, relationship and surprisingly maybe warm relationship between uh, Chinese immigrants and, and Jews, uh, two, the two largest non-Christian immigrant groups in the United States. And there are a couple of ways in which that has, has played out very tellingly, specifically in, in Chinese restaurants. Oh, indeed. I argue in my book that Chinese cuisine is the ethnic food of the American Jew, because it is, it is the food they identify with most, more so than like gefilte fish of the Eastern European ancestors. And the name of the chapter is Why Chow Mein the Chosen Food of the Chosen People, and it's interesting because it's very much just American Jews. Like you don't see that same kind of kinship in Israel, and you don't see that same kind of kinship among South African Jews or British Jews. And one of it is, as you noted, the fact that they're both non-Christian, so Chinese restaurants were open when Jews wanted to eat. I mean, this is you know way back in the day when restaurants closed on Sundays and they closed early. You know, they closed on Christmas. Now in New York City, you know, restaurants are open all the time. And another thing that is um, notable is that. Chinese food doesn't use dairy, and way back when, a lot of Jews kept kosher, so they didn't want to mix meat and milk, and so you could go to a Chinese restaurant and not have that fear, whereas the two other main ethnic cuisines in America, which are Mexican and Italian, both use a lot of dairy. Hmm. So in a way, I believe that Chinese restaurants help Jews assimilate into America at a time when they were still very immigrant and still very insecure about you know, their American identity. Yeah, I love that. You you quote actually a couple of psych- sociologists, I think, who said that Chinese food helped the generation of immigrant Jews, Jews feel more American, in part by making them feel more cosmopolitan at a time when they were trying to shed their image as hicks from rural Eastern Europe. Exactly. And, and that kinship has sort of 
survived over time. In a way, Jews have helped the Chinese because, you know, as the Jews moved into the suburbs, the Chinese restaurants followed them. So it's been a great symbiotic relationship over the decades. Hmm. That's only really found in America. Like, that duality is a very strong statement of um, American assimilation. Hmm. We're speaking with Jennifer Eight Lee about her book, The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food. Um, you have just, we've already touched on the fact that, that people in China uh, do not eat what we in America think of as Chinese food. I mean, the food that we order in Chinese restaurants here bears rather limited resemblance to the typical cuisine in China itself. In fact, you say for generations, Chinese immigrants and students have been warned not to be shocked by the Chinese food in American Chinese restaurants. And, you know, one can well imagine uh, a a Chinese immigrant walking into a Chinese restaurant and uh, expecting to see the familiar food of home and seeing something very, very different. Oh, yeah, they're very disturbed by it. Yeah. Uh, Tell us... Tell us some of the most important ways in which authentic Chinese cuisine, if we want to call it that, differs from that which is served in the typical Chinese restaurant in America. Well, one, um, American Chinese food reflects the fact that Americans don't like to be reminded that their food ever walked or swam or breathed or flew. So it's sort of um, excised of anything that is animalistic. So no eyeballs, no feet, no claws, no ears. Whereas Chinese food for Chinese people actually embraces the whole thickness of the animal. So you'll get, you know, the fish with the eyeballs and the bones. You'll get the duck's claws. You know, you'll get um, pig's feet. And you'll get, you know, um, tripe. Because I think that Chinese food in China developed under a culture of scarcity. So you wanted to use the entire animal and not let any of it go to waste. Whereas America historically has been one of the most prosperous countries on earth, both in terms of its economy and specifically with regard to food. So if you didn't want to be reminded that your food was once alive, you can pretend it comes from, you know, these meat styrofoam trays. So that's one. Two, um, I think Americans don't like food that are transparent or jiggly in their mouth, unless it's jello, whereas Chinese sort of embrace that also. Like you have jellyfish and sea cucumber and fungus that are all have this, um, weird texture going on. Well, and that they're semi-transparent. I mean, you can see inside them, and you say, yeah. we like things to be a bit more opaque when yeah. it comes to our food. <laughs> and I Very think you're right about that. And um, one of the reasons, I think, is Chinese people have this thing called kogan, which is mouth sensation, so that the, the food is valued not only for its flavor, but for the texture it provides in your mouth. So some things that seem very bland naturally, like jellyfish, have very simple flavors when you just have soy sauce and you know, sesame oil and vinegar. But the texture is great. Um, another thing that Americans like is they like foods that are kind of sweet and fried. So you see a lot of that reflected in Chinese food and Chinese restaurants here, like General Chow's chicken or Lake Tongting shrimp or Hunan beef. Um, but what's funny is that Chinese food in America is just a reflection of one way Chinese food is adapted. Like if you go around the world, you see Indian Chinese food that's adapted for an Indian taste. And you have French Chinese food, which serves salt and pepper frog legs. And you have uh, Jamaican Chinese food and Peruvian Chinese food. So all of these countries have taken Chinese food and adapted it to their own. So I call it something like localization. Mm. It's a global presence, but it's localized in the same way that we see it with McDonald's, right, which goes into India, can't serve 
beef hamburgers there. So they serve something called alu tiki, which is a potato burger, or Coca-Cola, which is sweeter in some countries and less sweet in others. But with, you know, Coca-Cola and McDonald's, we're impressed, and we know about them because they're so centralized as a presence and as a brand, but Chinese restaurants don't have that same kind of centralized, um, you know, network. They they are actually much more diffuse. So you don't have a headquarters that dictates things, right? Mm. People adapt on an ad hoc basis, and I think of it as a self-organizing, spontaneous network in the same way, you know, ant colonies. You know, how do the ants know how to do everything? Somehow they make little decisions that build into a huge hole. Mm, that add up to, to, yeah. to something great. You mentioned two other things that are distinctive about uh, Chinese versus American cuisine, which I think is really interesting. You say... Um, one thing that we like here in America is that uh, what goes into the mouth never comes out of the mouth again. You don't <laughs> chew on something and then spit out the inevitable edible part. Or, I mean, we do that very little. Very Whereas very in China, you say the aftermath of most restaurant meals is a pile of bones, shells, and other detritus on the table at every place setting. The casualties of a personal battle between the diner and the items on the plate. Exactly. Uh, so- I, shells and shrimp like we'll eat whole shrimp with the eyes on and even you know you leave the little bits of the antenna on the on the floor it's interesting the one the two areas that americans actually are okay with food going in and and something coming out are fried chicken and ribs which both have a very southern influence and thus a very black slash african influence Hmm. those are the two main ones actually you know i'm so glad you mentioned that that was an interesting passing comment at one point in your book that in saying something about Chinese restaurants, you you said with the exception of the South where there has always been, in a sense, a, a richer, more cosmopolitan um, landscape when it when it comes to food. I mean, a, a wider mix of, of mm-hmm. influences. And I'd not really stopped to think about that. But uh, that, of course, is, is, is true. And it's true when we're talking about this particular topic. Yes, and, and most particularly New Orleans, I think, has had the richest combination of influences from the, the Spanish and the French and, you know, African slave culture. And therefore, they, historically at a time when most of America was just eating things that were either bland or salty, they had sort of rich spices that gave rise to a good cuisine. But um, Chinese food actually was one of the main cuisines in American history that helped move um, the American palate past the Indo-European, very, very conservative, boiled and baked way of cooking. Like, it, it opened their eyes that there could be a new way to prepare food, and specifically vegetables, which until then had been largely just, like I said, boiled or baked, not very creative at all. Hmm. You, uh, you mentioned that uh, once upon a time, the, the, the single most popular quasi-Chinese food here in America was was chop suey. You say at one time it was nothing short of a national addiction. Uh, and, and one of your most challenging projects in writing this book was trying to trace back where chop suey came from because it didn't come from China, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, that ended up being uh, the, the kind of circuitous... Uh, torturous route that a private investigator might have to follow in, in uh, tracing down a whole lot of leads before yeah. finally coming up with a couple of at least tentative possibilities of where chop suey ultimately came from. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of historical legends 
um, that associate you know, the invention of Chapsu with the with the visit of a famous Chinese diplomat. But that visit was so closely covered because we're absolutely obsessed with it to the same degree that you know the tabloid press is now obsessed, obsessed with Brangelina. That if you go back and actually trace all those articles, there is no mention of Chapsu. So you're like, oh, this is really interesting. But I found an article from 1904 um, where a Chinese guy shows up hysterical in New York City and says, I want everyone to stop making chop suey. I'm going to file an injunction against you guys because you're violating my intellectual property because I invented this dish and it was stolen uh, by my boss. And the boss, as he tells it, had told him to invent a, a weird dish that would, quote, pass as Chinese um, to satisfy this like public craze for things Chinese at the time that the diplomat came. So in a way, they probably associated this dish with this guy and he created this legend that is the one that we all know now. But in fact, it could have been that it was just all designed to be celebrity marketing from the very, um, from the very early days. Hmm. And I never found the lawsuit. But I was very impressed that, he was, that the, the Chinese were clever enough to, to know about this idea of an injunction you know, and copyright and trademark. You know, yeah. I like the story that, 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 that is a a possible truth that uh, that it was for uh, some of the rowdy miners in California uh, uh, coming into a Chinese small Chinese restaurant after hours and demanding to be fed, and just the grabbing of odds and ends in the kitchen is what led to chop suey. But yeah. more specifically, I wanted to have you talk for a second about what you call at one point the magic behind chop suey, which helped explain why it was so enormously popular here. Right. was that it was familiar but exotic. And, of course, we can point to this for so many things that we find in, in Chinese restaurants, and Chinese restaurants themselves are this intriguing mix of the familiar and exotic. Indeed. The, um, the, the formula that Chinese restaurateurs over the generations have been to take something that's that is familiar. So in this case, in chop suey, it was chicken, it was pork, it was beef. These are very American meats that are comp- different in, in large part to the meats that the Chinese originally ate when they first came to America. That the Americans found scary. Like, oh my God, are these people eating dogs or cats or rats? So they take familiar meats, and what they do is they pair them with vegetables that are just slightly exotic. But they're, that's okay, because they're vegetables, right? Vegetables are safe. You know, they weren't walking around. And they had bean sprouts and water chestnuts and snow peas. And these were all different textures and shapes from the things that Americans were eating at that time. So this marriage of the familiar with the slightly exotic kind of endeared it to Americans. And you see it again you know, with General Tao's chicken, right? It's sort of slightly exotic techniques in terms of frying and then with the sauce. But it's very familiar in the end. It's chicken. It's fried. It's sweet. And the, the, the recipes have been so powerful in that they've adapted to the palates of the, the, the local countries. Not just here, like I said before, but in, in countries like India hmm. and, um, and even Italy. So one of the funny things is, you know, they're not serving fortune cookies in the rest of the world, so what are they serving? And in Italy, they serve fried gelato. That's the standard dessert that you will find in a, in a Chinese restaurant in Italy. And my downstairs neighbor is Italian, and she thought fried gelato was something Chinese. And I was like, dude, it's not Chinese. Like, they don't have ice cream in China. And, but she'd always associated it with something that she'd eaten in Chinese restaurants. And in the same way, therefore, she thought they were Chinese. <laughs> like, shocked, my Interesting. Oh. We have uh, 
kind of an interesting controversy uh, surrounding a popular restaurant, Chinese restaurant in our own community, which has been cited for uh, health code violations. And uh, the owner of the restaurant was quoted in the newspaper as protesting at least some of these uh, uh, violations as a mistake. And she said in, in, in one particular case, uh, what the inspector thought was mouse droppings in the kitchen are in fact some kind of exotic small bean which is used in Chinese cooking and that this inspector had obviously mistaken some of these beans which had fallen on the floor for mouse droppings. And uh, the inspector is quoted very clearly in the paper saying, I know what mouse droppings look like. These were mouse droppings, not some, some fancy bean. But the story kind of reminds me of what, what you were just saying, that, uh, that this is part of what in, kind of intrigues us, is that there is so much in a Chinese restaurant that, that seems immediately familiar to us in terms of the, the ingredients and even how they're put together. There's not a whole lot of mystery to it. And yet there is something that makes it feel completely different from... Wendy's or Arby's or any of these things that we think of as entirely American. This feels like something uh, in which we are engaging in a bit of ethnic ex- exploration. Exactly. And the Chinese have been very good in sort of selling that imagery to Americans. Like, there are no pandas in Chinese restaurants in China, right? That's definitely something that's largely used to cater to Americans' concepts of things that are chinese And a good example also for that is P.F. Chang's, which is a big chain. Um, their whole motif are these terracotta warriors, you know, these very austere-looking statues. And Americans love it because it's, oh, it's you know, Chinese, but not a panda or a dragon. Like, it's kind of sophisticated. But you know, to a Chinese perspective, a man pointed out to me, this is a, a Chinese chef, he's like, this entire place is decorated with death because the terracotta warriors, if you must know, is, they're the afterlife army of the first uh, emperor, King Suhuangdi, who decided to build this whole um, you know, set of statues to bring with him to the afterlife in case, I don't know, in case he needed to fight, you know, fight a war. So, you know, Chinese people look at it and, like, think of it as a funeral parlor, whereas Americans look at it and think, like, oh, this is quaint and exotic. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what, what a difference that makes. Let's finish with some really insightful observations you make at the end of the book about food itself, you call it an intimate language that everyone understands, everyone shares. It is the primary ambassador of first contact between cultures, one that transcends spoken language. Food crosses cultural barriers, it bridges oceans. Becoming competent in a foreign language takes lots of time, and learning a culture's history and literature requires a great deal of effort, but everyone can immediately have an opinion on food. And you say our curiosity about food from other places says something about our curiosity and acceptance of other cultures. But I want to ask you about something wonderful you come up with. In contrast to the picture made common once that America is a melting pot and later that America is a tossed salad, you come up with a different image now of what America is. I couldn't resist in a food, in a book about Chinese food. I actually argue it's more like a storefront where you have your distinct ingredients that stay apart, but what happens is their juices and their sauces all mix together to create um, a sauce that we all share. And that's what I think America is like. Like, there still is Chinese cuisine separately, but elements of Chinese culture and Indian culture and Mexican culture have moved into the mainstream, right? So you get soy lattes at Starbucks, and you can now they make 
burrito wraps. They use the wraps inside, but you, you can find turkey, you know, pesto turkey salad or something like that. And you know, yoga has been sort of dumbed down <laughs> to a certain extent to become um, a very athletic form that you can do in New York City sports clubs. And all of that contributes to a changing of America, where I argue that not only does America change the mainstream, so not only does the mainstream change the immigrants, but the immigrants in turn change the mainstream. So you're having everything blend together in a way that people don't necessarily recognize unless you point it out to them. And Chinese food is part of that, that I point out, you know, this is your comfort food. This is a food that you're familiar with. This is all American at this point, even if you didn't realize it. Hmm. The book is called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food, published by 12, and the author, Jennifer Eight. Lee. Jennifer Lee, thank you so much for writing this fascinating book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. It was fantastic to 